This is KDOU's How Curious, the podcast devoted to little-known Oklahoma stories. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and today's episode starts in rural Oklahoma, just a few miles east of Lake Thunderbird. Now this whole section, who used to own it back in the 30s. This bucolic landscape seems a world away from Chicago's violent underworld. Don't you know it's Valentine's Day? Come on, line up, you guys. All seven of you. Face the wall. Yet the two are linked by a man whose life was split between the two places and, it seems, two personalities. Larry Polk is a lifelong Oklahoma resident and went to school in Norman. We always heard rumors of the Mafia and Brindle Corner. That's the name of a property near here. But I never could find anyone that really knew anything about it. So one time I was uh, ran into this man and his name was Ernie Brindle. Brindle was working as a loss adjuster. I said, I hope it's not offensive. But I have always heard about the Mafia and Brindle Corner. Is it true? And he said, yes. He was my uncle, Murray the Camel Humphreys. He went by many other names too, such as the Hump and Curly. But he was born Llewellyn Morris Humphreys in 1899. Gus Russo wrote extensively about him in The Outfit, his book about the organized crime cartel of the same name. He was the son of Welsh immigrants. They were dirt poor. And he found himself turning into a juvenile delinquent. But he was also brilliant. Everybody who met him knew he was different than the other thugs. He, he had a real brain. Despite his illicit escapades, many found Humphreys both personable and exceptional. In 1913, during one of his many early arrests, he came before a judge who evidently saw potential in him. Judge Murray told him he should read law books, maybe become a lawyer. For the rest of his life, he buried himself in all the big, thick law textbooks, just looking for loopholes, obviously. He loved it. Humphreys was so grateful for the judge's advice that he changed his name to Murray in his honor. Around a decade later, he evidently made a good impression on another man, the ruthless Al Capone. This despite the unprepossessing circumstances in which the pair met. Larry Polk learned about this from Humphrey's nephew, Ernie Brendel. He hijacked a load of liquor that Capone owned and got caught. Well, usually that was a death sentence. So they brought him before Capone, and this guy was so likable, so knowledgeable. Capone took a liking to him and hired him on, and so he... He was the brains of the Chicago outfit. Literally made them billions and billions of dollars. The Capone meeting was an important turning point in the young man's professional life. It had been preceded by another one, this time in his personal life. Here's Gus Russo again. In 1921, I think, he was nabbed in a, uh, a burglary, which he was doing many of, and he went on the run, or on the lamb, as they call it. And, and where did he go? He was going to hide out with his brother, Ernest, who, of all things, had a, um, a place in Little Axe, Oklahoma. He takes a job as a Victrola salesman. People today probably have no idea what that is, but it's like a record player. This is probably the only straight job Curly ever had. While going door to door as a salesman, he meets uh, the woman who would become the love of his life, who was uh, a native of uh, Norman, half Cherokee. Her name was Clementine, Mary Clementine Brendel. Most people called her Clemmy. She was a very pretty young girl, and she was brilliant. According to legend, she had a photographic memory. They got married, and she became his accountant, and she did it a lot just by memory. And that's really saying something, given the amount of money she would end up managing. 
After Capone was imprisoned for tax evasion in 1931, the young men who'd been working for him emerged as the aforementioned outfit. Humphreys became part of its senior management and was even its interim boss for a while, despite having no Italian heritage. With prohibition now over, the outfit needed new ways to make money. Humphreys is credited with masterminding various strategies, among them union racketeering, in other words, using union power to extort business bosses. They called him the Einstein. He was constantly coming up with new ways to generate huge amounts of money. And Curley realized early on they couldn't control companies from the top, but they could control the companies from the bottom, be it the truckers union or the laundry union or the milk union or the linen union, whatever. First, you'd have to take over the unions and that could be ugly. They would literally come in with machine guns into the union meetings and threaten people's lives if they didn't let them take it over. But once you had them, then the executives have to answer to you because you can strike whenever you want. And so then the mob were saying to the actual workers, this is what you need to do. Is that right? Oh, it was crazy. What they were doing was they were playing both sides against the middle. They would tell the workers, we're going to take care of you and make sure you get good wages and everything. So the workers were cool with it. And they would go to the executives and say, if you pay us, we'll keep our demands very low and and not ask for wages for our people, but we won't tell them that. So they were screwing both of them. So to speak. To give you some idea of the outfit's tactics, during the 16 months that they were targeting the laundries, over 150 shops were bombed. When they finally won out, the laundry business became central to Humphrey's plans, as Larry Polk explains. Ernie was telling me he was the one (laughs) that came up with the phrase laundering the money. And what they were doing was taking the money from other things that were illegal and running them through the laundry's business to launder the money. Aside from presiding over the racketeering and other money-making schemes, Humphreys was putting his legal expertise to use. You got any business? I refuse to answer on the grounds of intent to criminate. You have any profession? I refuse to answer. You know Tony Accardo, is that correct? I invoke the Fifth Amendment on that. I refuse to answer on the grounds that may answer... Wait a while. On the grounds that my answer may tend to incriminate me. One of the things he studied was the Fifth Amendment, the right to not incriminate yourself in a courtroom. He realized that this could also be used in front of Congress. That had never been done before. In fact, when congressional hearings into organized crime would happen, the Chicago guys would plead the Fifth and the committee men would say, you can't do that. And Curley would interrupt and say, yes, I think we can. And he was always proven right. This was built in the mid-30s. So this is the original. You can see the woodwork is fantastic. Oh, yeah. This is... Jay Williams is a retired Norman fire captain, and he's showing me around the stone and brick house which he now owns, but which used to be part of the Oklahoma property of Humphreys and his family. It's just across the way from Brendel Corner. Do you know what the wood is? No, I don't. But it has to be an expensive cut. Just for it to sit there in 100 years and not peel or warp or, mm. or anything, it, it had to be high dollar. We're talking about the beautiful interior wooden walls. You know, when he was here, it was family time. They would come here and relax, and I I don't think there was any nefarious stuff that went on here. Gus Russo is of the same opinion. Murray had sort of a second life. It was like Clark Kent and Superman. He'd take his clothes off and become a Superman in Chicago and then go back to uh, Norman and be a completely different person. Everybody loved him. A lot of people didn't even know he was a gangster. He had a lot of friends out there. He was known for passing out silver dollars to people who were in need. We're back with Larry Polk. He also 
gathered up turkeys in Thanksgiving and passed them out. He was really, really fond of the Native Americans. Anytime he hired one of them, he paid them really, really well. You want to see the pool? Absolutely. Okay. Did you bring your trunks? No, I wish I had. <laughs> it really ain't much swimming going on. We filled it in. When he built the house, he put a swimming pool in. And when the cement was drying, he embedded silver dollars in it. And he used to get a huge kick watching people try to go down there and get those silver dollars. No one could ever do it, but they always tried. Those silver dollars were long gone by the time Jay bought the property. During the decades that it belonged to Humphreys, the family spent a good deal of time here. At some point, Humphreys and Clemmie divorced and he married a younger woman. Yet the two stayed friends and Humphreys continued to visit her here, including during the run-up to the 1960 presidential race between Nixon and Kennedy. Ernie told me he was at the house the day that the call came in from Chicago. They said, we're backing JFK. He got really, really mad. And he was yelling, no, no, he said, we can't do that. Joe Kennedy is a double-crosser. We'll get double-crossed on this. He went on and on and on, and finally they said, well, the decision's been made, and so, okay, that's what he did. Humphreys returned to Chicago and went to work, but he was proved right. Joe Kennedy had promised the outfit that if they supported his son, they'd be left in peace. However, once the election was over, organized crime became the primary focus of the Department of Justice under the Kennedy administration. Actually, Humphreys had been under surveillance by the FBI for decades, but had mostly managed to avoid getting into any serious trouble. In fact, he seems to have charmed them in the same way he charmed most other people that he came across, as Larry Polk told me. He was in Chicago, and the driver said, the FBI is following us. He said, okay, stop at the next stoplight. I'm going to get out and go back and talk to him. So he gets out of the car and goes back, and he asks the guys, Are you guys FBI? And they said, yes. He said, you following me? He said, yes. He said, well, why don't I get in with you, and you can take me where I need to go. I'll just send my guy home. Okay. And he hopped in, and they took him everywhere he needed to go. They said he even bought him lunch. In the 1960s, things became a lot more serious. Curly wanted out of the organization by that point, and um, the FBI was after him. He was out in Norman, and they were looking for him to appear before a grand jury. They arrested him and took him back to Chicago. Once there, bail was posted and Humphreys went to stay in his apartment in the city. That's where he was on Thanksgiving Day of 1965, when some more agents turned up with a fresh warrant. Murray answered the door. He had a 38 in his hand, and so they had to wrestle that away from him. And they got a key to the safe out of his pocket and got the contents out of it. Greatly upset him. Well, he had heart condition anyway. Again, Humphreys made bail and returned to his flat. And his brother found him later on that night, had been vacuuming, and had fallen over dead. He was 66 years old. When he died, uh, the family flew to Chicago. They cremated him, and they brought him back here because he, lo he loved uh, Oklahoma. Norman, he loved Norman, Oklahoma. They say there's a mausoleum out there. There is a mausoleum out here. So evidently they sold all the property around it. It's quite away from the house and Jay doesn't own the land it stands on. The original Humphreys property has long since been parceled out into many smaller tracts. It's a substantial reddish marble block. Originally, the only name engraved on it was Humphreys. Now it has Brendel Humphreys Brady. Brendel for Clemmy, and Brady was the married name of their daughter, who died in 1992. 
So, an extraordinary and complex man who, for all his likability, could be merciless. There certainly was a period in his life during the Capone years when he could have people killed. Either he killed them or he could have them killed. If there were union people who crossed the mob, Curly would have them killed. And it wasn't often, it wasn't like that was his stock in trade. He probably didn't like doing it. But yeah, he, um, he was not a great guy. Gus Russo bringing this episode to a close. I'd like to thank him and the other contributors, as well as Kim and Jean Dick and Regina Howe. And you can see photos of Murray and his former Oklahoma home on the How Curious webpage. Just search for KGOU and How Curious. How Curious is a production of KDOU Public Radio. It's produced by me, Rachel Hopkin. The editor is Logan Layden, and David Gray composed our theme music. Now, if you have an Oklahoma-related question or an idea for a story, please do email us at curious at kgou.org. From an Iraq war cover-up to towns ravaged by opioids to the roots of our modern immigration crisis, Embedded explores what's been sealed off and undisclosed. NPR's original investigative podcast reveals why these stories and the people behind them matter. Listen to the Embedded podcast only from NPR.